How's everyone doing today? Green Squad Chats. Awesome. Love it. Well, Love it. well I think today we're going to be talking about uh, what's your favorite real estate market niche is. There's market, submarket, niches, whatever you want to call them. What's your favorite? Why? What gets you excited about it? You know, what are the market conditions and just other factors that you really look to to leverage in that area of your business? I think we'll have Adam start us off and and just kind of go around the room there. My favorite by far is buy and hold for cash flow. I think it is foundational because if you are, and whether this is commercial or residential, I think it applies to both because there are active strategies in both. When you buy something that cash flows, meaning I buy it, I put debt on it. After all the expenses, there's money to go into my pocket. You open up all of the other niches to that particular uh, investment strategy. Now, some people on this call are appreciation junkies. I won't say any names. You determine that for yourself. But from a investor like my personal risk profile and what I like as an investor, even if I'm going to flip that asset, you know, if it's an apartment in five to seven years or it's a single family house and I'm going to end up exiting that property for more money and capturing that equity. I like the optionality of in the beginning that I can either flip it and make money or I can hold on to it and make money because what I've seen is, People go active, meaning they're gonna they're gonna buy low and sell high or buy, add value and then sell for more money. They either get themselves in trouble with debt and having um, too much debt being over leveraged, and then they have no exit. You get yourself in trouble. I personally like the cash flow model for buy and hold, where if I buy that thing, even if I go over budget on a on a reposition or a rehab or if I decide I need to realize capital for another opportunity, I have those options available to me. And typically if an asset cash flows, typically not always, there's gonna be some built-in equity there to actually cash flow. So for me, it's buy and hold and it's cash flow. Um, I like appreciation, but I really, really love buy and hold it in cash flow personal. I love it. Thank you for that. Totally makes sense. And uh, it's a classic, the buy and hold. Brandon, what do you think? Uh, something interesting Adam said that I keyed in on was, uh, this might not be ver verbatim, Adam, but it was basically, it depends kind of on your unique profile, right? What is your vision? What principles do you tap into when choosing an asset? Um and that is going to help you key into the different types of real estate that you could invest in. And so for you, based on, you said this, based on you and your, and your personal um, desires, wishes, visions, goals, the buy and hold cash flow model tends to work. So um, I think that's a key thing to tap into for anybody who's looking to invest in real estate. First, you have to kind of understand what's most important to you. And there's a lot of principles involved here other than just cash on cash return, internal rate of return. It's about more than just what rate of return can I squeeze out of this investment or this asset. And it becomes more, 
what other principles are at play that are going to be very beneficial to me in my overall financial financial strategy, like options, cash flow, building equity, the ability to leverage it. All of that makes you more resilient and none of it necessarily had to do with the rate of return. So uh, those are kind of my thoughts. Uh, anyone else in the group have anything to add? I'll jump in. I When I started investing in real estate, I was trying to buy for cash flow and uh, I thought that was the key to success, very much like Adam described. And I have found that monthly repairs have crushed cash flow across two properties, 17 doors, and cash flow is not reliable. But I'll tell you what has accumulated a ton of equity. And the only way for me to real- realize that in its entirety is to have a capital event, uh, either a really good cash out refi or more likely uh, disposition of the property via sale and uh, capture that equity and roll it into something else. Uh, so I'm, I'm still looking for that good cash flow. Uh, Adam, uh, Adam talks about, I'll find it someday. In the meantime, uh, I'm buying for, uh, capital, uh, for appreciation. I think Tom, that leads right into what I was going to talk about. I think that, uh, one of the greatest things you could do from a real estate standpoint is do private lending. You don't have to worry about the toilets. You don't have to worry about anything else other than letting your money grow quicker, faster, through lending it and you're in a first position and you should be in a first position in a private money. And that gives you the opportunity to, if anything does go bad, that you have a property at a steep discount because you're in it as a mortgage company with first position lien and you're continuing making money with that individual. And as that appreciation grows, you can start leveraging equity because as a private lender, you leverage debt first. But as you gain more experience and, and wisdom in private lending, you can just start leveraging debt and equity as a lending entity. And I think that uh, can give you a lot of power. Hey, Travis, real quick, why don't you just break down the basics of a private lending transaction and some of those key terms that you use just for, for those out there that might not be as familiar with it? So private lender, when we talk about private money, right, everybody thinks it's hard money or private money. Private money is typically an in person that you have a very close relationship with and hard money is simply a company that lends their money out with private lending. You have a duration of time, usually in a promissory note that you, the borrower and the lender come to terms with, and the terms are open to anything the the two entities want to discuss and that they come to that agreement and you sign a length of term that you're going to lend your money out at a specific interest rate. Now that interest rate could be just the interest rate, or you could have a thing called points. And a point is usually 1% of the amount of money that you're lending out. So $100,000, you're going to lend out $100,000. A point would be $1,000. Then you lend the money out. It could be on the purchase price. It could be on the rehab. It could be on both. It could be on whatever it is, the two entities that agree upon the lending and the duration of what it's going to be for and for the amount that it's for. And the private lender receives either monthly payments, quarterly payments, or they can do a principal and interest at the back end when the borrower closes the deal or finishes the transaction of what they're borrowing borrowing the money for. And you rinse and repeat. Love it. Thank you. That's great. All right. I got a a few things that I can add to this, uh, this discussion. So I invest for equity. 
I actually, the way I run my analysis on a, on a buy and hold long-term rental is the cash flow simply just has to cover the property. So I'm not losing money. So in a great area in Tampa, let's say I can buy, uh, I was just looking at this last week. Let's say I can buy a three unit in Hyde Park. And when I uh, conservatively estimate all the maintenance, repair, CapEx, uh, rent loss due to vacancy, all that stuff, if the property is only earning me like 1% cash on cash return, but it's in a great area and I've run my analysis conservatively, I will still do that deal. Um, so I'm a huge fan of buy and hold long-term rentals for equity with the assumption that the cash flow at least covers the property. I actually don't want to make a lot of cash flow each year because I pay taxes on that. I don't pay taxes on equity gained. I could borrow against that later on. I can sell it into a 1031 exchange. Uh, I think at first I was really fixated on like, you know, the, the 10% cash on cash return. But um, as I've grown in my investing experience, I favor the equity with a lot of assumptions, right? I think we can all agree across the board. There's so many awesome strategies in real estate. You can pair a, thousands of strategies together. Um, but that just happens to be mine, uh, which is ironic because it works really well at Tampa in my in my opinion, in my experience versus, you know, you, you have heavy cash flow market. Like I, I was in Fayetteville previously, I had a four unit there, the best cash on cash return I've ever seen. And then when I sold the property, I sold it for almost the same as I bought it for nearly two years later. Uh, and you look at a market like San Diego, you're going to be negative on cash flow probably every month, but then you're going to get better equity in the long term. So I consider Tampa kind of like a hybrid market where the cash flow isn't going to be stellar like some of you guys are seeing in, in maybe Milwaukee or Fayetteville, but it's not going to be negative either. Those are my thoughts. And and the reason I'm so intent on that is is uh, it's, it's great on taxes. Can you talk about real quick some of those key factors that would make a market um, more in favor of appreciation or cash flow? You, you name dropped a couple different markets there. I think that'd be helpful. Um, yeah. So I think at its core, what it comes down to is the purchase price of the asset. Because let's face it, all of us are going to be getting debt on any property that we buy. So you got the purchase price along with market rents. If you're in a market like San Diego, um, you know you got a much higher purchase price. And that rent ratio isn't nearly, uh, you know, nearly close to the one percent rule that you might see in Fayetteville. So I think I think that's the biggest thing, and that simply comes down to supply and demand, the amount of buyers versus renters in a market, and the desirability of an area based on a ton of economic factors, job growth, population growth. Um, if anybody else has anything to add? I'd love to hear it as well. I actually wanted to anchor a little bit on focusing on the equity, James. I think you bring up a phenomenal point. Um, so I. You know, I believe really every time you buy an asset, you're making a decision on where to store your capital. And that capital is being stored in the form of equity uh, in real estate. And so you're choosing to store capital in the form of equity in real estate. Why? Because you're choosing an asset that historically is going to appreciate. And there's physical, it's physicality, right? You can do a lot of things with that asset, providing a lot of options and giving you a lot of resilience based on where you stored your capital. And because you've stored your capital in this asset that uh, is structured like real estate, it's physical. When you need to access the value, you don't have to dip into the asset withdrawing money or, or um, somehow destroying the underlying asset. Instead, you can leverage it. And so we're talking about capital preservation and the ability to leverage it as a source of financing via home equity line of credit, for example. Uh, so I thought, I, 
it's just another option. It's just another focus area on how real estate can be such a good investing strategy uh, because of the way it, it does protect your capital. It tends to protect it and grow it over time and still gives you the ability to leverage it. And assets like that, um, which there are, are more than just real estate, but assets like that, I think, provide a, a, love, a level of resilience in your overall financial strategy that will help you weather the storms and the volatility and, and a lot of uncertainty that you just can't plan for everything. So, um, yeah, those are my thoughts. I think that's an excellent point, Brandon. I appreciate you sharing that. And, you know, where you store the value, I think that concept is uh, you articulate it very well and there's, there's plenty of places to store it. So I, I shouldn't be keeping it under my mattress is what is what you're saying or is that still... No, that's okay. I can tell by your reaction. Yeah. That's, that's frowned upon these days, especially in this inflationary <laughs> environment that we saw. In that, that is, hey, that is an option. That that is a decision of where to store your capital. It might not be the best, but it is a, it is a decision. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, I think that was interesting to hear. Everyone thinks about it. Obviously, some differences there, and there's a lot of different. Um, I mean, there there are plenty of vehicles, uh, as was pointed out by the team. So. Um, Lots to continue to talk about there. I think something I was thinking about as you guys were talking <clears throat> with the different kind of focus areas in real estate and in your business is, you know, where leadership plays into that. Um, I think everyone here is is pretty passionate about, you know, leadership and leadership principles and has used it to, to grow their business. Um, and I'm sure made some mistakes along the way. So, It'd be interesting to hear if anyone has any, you know, quick lesson learned type stories, leadership lessons, things that uh, they have changed about how they operate uh, as leaders in their business, you know, and, and could kind of share how that happened and, and what they took away from it. I certainly have done things the wrong way many times. So I, I, I can tell you, um, I can tell you that all of us are military guys who've led service members and have been trained for our entire adult lives to lead. And then when you, when you go to bus the business side of the house or the corporate side of the house, I think many of those leadership skills tra transition really well, but there is a difference because in business, there's a bottom line and there are activities that associate directly with a measurable bottom line. So I think accountability is actually easier to uphold from that sense because you can look at your folks and see what activities or key performance indicators based on their job role they are and you can you know say very distinctly you're hitting under you're hitting over you, you need to improve and put them on improvement plans and things like that so that to me that's the um that's the difference is the bottom line whereas in the as a service member you know higher risk because you know, the the, the stakes are higher for things like combat and war and that stuff, but uh, they don't necessarily have a bottom line. So it's a little more subjective in many ways. The one thing I would say for me that has rang true throughout is while in the service, we're very mission focused. And I think it would be a perception sometimes that uh, the people come second. I have found success in both the business side and the service side, the military service side, and 
just thinking about it. If I take care of the people on my team, they will take care of the mission. People always are willing to rise for you if they feel like they're taken care of. If, when you go, when you have to ask somebody to do something hard and they know, trust and respect you because you've looked out for them, they are a hundred times more likely to go above and beyond to accomplish that goal or that mission for you. So my, my, the thing that transitions the best is take care of the people and the people 100% will take care of the mission. It has never failed me. Yeah. That's, that's awesome to hear Adam. Uh, I have something to, to add to that. I think my, my one leadership lesson, which I learned in the military, but applying it to business felt a little bit different uh, was be the change you wish to see, you know, show that, that example to your team um, and really embody it. And I'll give a really specific example in business. Um, I went through four different versions. Uh, I was calling it really a, an assistant at first, not really the right title. I went through four different versions of an operations manager before I found the right person. And that caused me to take a really hard look at myself. And I realized like, let's look at my lifestyle and business during that time. I was working literally one month straight and taking one day off. And so when it came to things that had to be done on a weekend, I would just, I would hit up my, my that person. And that's not, that's not, somebody doesn't want to work for somebody who's just overworking. And it, that feels different to me because I'm the owner of the business. So I'm really passionate about that. Um, and so I had to kind of adjust my expectations and make sure if they're doing a really good job during our agreed upon uh, work schedule, respect their time. And so that actually helped me because I, I'm taking more time for me now through the realization that. Uh, giving my team a more balanced schedule and not being too uh, too demanding on myself and then through through myself them has really helped me find the right person. I'm getting more results now in the business than I ever have just through through that shift. And it, it took some challenge to fully arrive at that mentally, but uh, now I can I can say you know I I have balanced this change that I wanted to see. It, you know it was it was a rough. A rough road to get there. Um, I'm leaving that way. That's such a good point because those of us on this call, or who are listening to this, or the entrepreneurs, or the service member connected folks that are listening to this, are typically highly driven people. And most people aren't going to work thirty straight days like us. And just the self awareness, James, I think is is so critical. Literally, talk to my team yesterday about boundaries. I'm terrible with boundaries because my mind my mind is always on. So something pops up at 9 p.m. I may want to text my operations director and I've had to do the same exact thing and even outwardly talk about it with her to say, hey, look, if if I'm crossing a boundary, please help me to help you and let me know that, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm with my family and I'll do my best to not cross that boundary unless it's absolutely needed. And yeah, it's taken a year and a half for me to kind of be gain that self-awareness, James. So I'm, I'm right there with you on that one. This reminds me of a story, you know, I, not a story, but more of a life lesson. I'll jump in. I, at, I mean, I, this is gold. Adam talking about, you know, investing in your people uh, is, you know, foundational, I think, to a successful organization in the military, out of the military, business, pick your sector, doesn't matter. Uh, investing in the development of your people uh, absolutely builds winning organizations. Um, and uh, James's point about being that change you want to see, this, this is phenomenal. I'll, uh, 
I wasn't sure which way I was going to go. I'll, I'll I'll share one of the the axioms that that I used in a, in a recent organization that I'm going to carry for the rest of my life, and that's to assume positive intent. We walk around uh, in the military, out of the military, in, in so many of the interactions we have. We walk around assuming the worst in those with whom we interact, and we assume that people are out to get us. We assume that people aren't trying their best. And I don't know why we do it. Uh, maybe I'll write a book about it someday when I figure it out. But in the meantime, it's, it's something that I've observed that we're constantly assuming that people aren't trying their best or they're not smart enough. And the reality is, I think 90% of the time, that's not true. People are trying their best. Uh, the folks with whom you work, they're, they're giving it their all. Is it maybe a different viewpoint than you have? Sure. So when we start assuming that those with whom we interact are truly giving their best, making decisions in good faith and trying to contribute to, to the organization and the mission, whatever it is, we totally flip the script and it becomes a very positive interaction. And I find that, that we're, we're getting better results and it becomes this very infectious, almost culture. Uh, and, and again, I had great results in my last organization and I'm going to carry that with me forever. And I'll tell you how I got there too, because somebody, I, I got there because somebody called me out. Somebody said, why are you, why are you being passive aggressive? Why are you being, why are you assuming that that guy's not pulling his weight? Uh, and, and getting that challenge from, from, uh, one of my good friends, uh, really got me thinking about things in a different light. Yeah, Tom, great point. That reminds me of two stories in my life. I, in college, I was a server. And so I thought that I was the best server, right? And so when I go out to eat with my family or I go to a restaurant somewhere, I'm, I, was judging that server that was serving me horribly. And I had to realize, I'm like, Hey, that, that person does it different. And they're probably doing the best they can. Like you were saying that, that, uh, what was the phrase? Assume positive intent. Right. And, uh, so I was like, yeah, they're, they're doing a good thing. And that also recently I was talking to, uh, I trained jujitsu and, and have been for like 15 years and was talking to a professor and I'm like, how do you, you know, if jujitsu, everybody can and should do jujitsu. Well, and that's my shameless plug. But how does, you know, you decide when someone's ready for the next belt or when someone's ready for a promotion or, you know, because if everybody was supposed to be amazing, nobody would do it because nobody would be as good as, you know, the, the world champs that you see, per, you know, day, year in and year out. And the professor, he's like, I judge them on their intent within their capability. So if you've got the person that like, this is the, this is the best they're going to be based on the professor's experience of 30, 40 years of being a black belt. And they are striving at that intent with, within their, their knowledge of jujitsu, then they're crushing it. And I was like, oh, that's very, very interesting. And, uh, that really kind of helped shape my, my self-awareness. And I think that ties in really well with that assuming positive intent with individuals and not yourself and the people that you work with. Can I just lighten the mood for a second? I think, I think everybody wants to know this. Everybody on this call is or was either Navy or Marine Corps. And we have one other member who failed to show up today. Uh, we're not going to say his name, but you'll hear him on a future podcast. And uh, in the background, he's trying to talk to us while we're doing this. And he knows we're doing this. And he's asking what's going on. And James says, 
Navy and Marine Corps leadership lessons, something you wouldn't understand. So any of our military listeners will absolutely love that. He's an Air Force guy, um, so he doesn't know how to spell leadership. But I got to take that shout out on why he's not here. I think on that, um, 100%. We can only have one Air Force guy, too. I mean, it's a charity case. Everyone needs one. Uh, but on that, I think we wrap it up. Uh, that was that was brilliant, guys, honestly, um, unscripted and just from the heart and some real gems there that, I mean, I've seen each and every one of you apply, you know, in life and business, uh, both in the military and your day jobs and, and outside of it. So thanks for sharing and thanks for the thoughts on uh, on the markets and why you like them and what you like to go deep on. But uh, screen, screen squad chats and uh, we'll see you next time. <laughs>